You notice it is getting a little crowded in here. Which is a good problem to have. And not everybody's here. And not everyone's here. But I am so thankful for BJ being willing to open her home up and let us crowd in here and share a great meal together. And tonight, after class, at the end of class, we're going to share communion together, which we have not done for a while. I think that's very important. The song that John was just leading on us, Your Name, you know, a lot of people don't realize that one of the most uh, holy titles for God in the Old Testament was the name, Hashem, which is very interesting because it comes, of course, into the New Testament. And in John, he talks about, in 1 John, 1st or 3rd John, he talks about those who have gone out for the sake of the name. And we need to understand from the Jewish perspective that the name spoke of the character and the reputation of the person that that name represented. So for us, of course, that name is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the name above every name. We're going to be in Revelation 12 tonight, and I'm going to try to move quick enough to get into chapter 13. I want to try to move a little bit faster because you do have notes. Uh, there's no way that I can cover all that's in the notes. Um, I do bring in from time to time additional information, and I'll be doing that tonight. Um, but I would like to try to move a little bit more quickly. Uh, I will be here next Friday night, but then the following Friday I'll be in Pennsylvania for a youth camp. And so I think John's going to be on, and I appreciate so much his willingness to step in and take class while I'm away, and uh, he, he does a great job teaching. Um, Seemed like there was something else I needed to bring up. But at any rate, if we can finish up the book of Revelation, we're going to be leaving toward the end of August for India again. Uh, we'll be going back to Nagaland and then India. Uh, we'll have uh, ministry uh, in Nagaland. I'll be teaching at the Bible Institute there. Uh, Nan and we've got our granddaughter and a friend of hers going with us. They're going to be working with the orphans at the children's home. And then when we go back down to uh, India, I'll be teaching a three-day pastor's conference with approximately 130 or more pastors and their wives. So wow. it's going to be a, a great time in India. So keep that in prayer if you would. So we're going to pick up here in Revelation chapter 12. Let me just once again lift up our class in prayer and then we'll get started. Our Father, how thankful we are that we do represent the name that is above every name. The name of the Lord Jesus, to which one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Father, how fortunate, how blessed, uh, how much a provision of your grace that we have come to know and cherish and magnify that name before that time when even those who have rejected Christ through their whole life, confronted with his holiness, confronted with his mercy, confronted with his sacrifice, uh, their own conscience will compel them to bow the knee and to acknowledge that he is truly King of kings and Lord of lords. So, Father, as we open your word tonight, we not only recognize the importance of the name, but we also remember, as David wrote for us in Psalm 138 and verse 2, that you have magnified your word above your very name. And that's something that we need to bear in mind because it's your word, ultimately, that purifies our life and leads us into a right relationship with you. So, Father, as we open your word, may God, the Holy Spirit, take control of the time that we're going to spend together, magnify and glorify your Son and our Savior, and bring words that will edify, encourage, and challenge each and every one of us, for we ask it in Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> so, one of the things that I think we need to bear in mind as we go through the book of Revelation 
with with all the symbolism, with all of the strange and uh, weird things that are going to be going on on the earth, there's one lesson that really runs through the whole section on the tribulation. And of course, the section on the tribulation is chapter 6 through chapter 18. And isn't it interesting that right in the middle of the section dealing with the tribulation period, we have Revelation chapter 12. It's going to identify the main players for us. And that's uh, where we'll be tonight. Uh, but it's important for us to realize that the one theme that runs through the whole book is this. God is in control. Amen. He has not lost control. And it's very important for us. Of course, our time is nothing compared to what the people in the tribulation are going to be going through. But we do sometimes get frustrated. As we see the, uh, the spread and the depth of evil that's permeating our country, not only our country, but the whole world, uh, we find ourselves as a nation uh, depleted, discouraged, um, and yet our leadership are pushing us into what could easily turn into World War III. Um, Sometimes we wake up and we look around at the world and we just wonder how the world has gone so insane. But it's important for us today, as it will be even more so for those living in the tribulation period, to realize God is in control. And we're often asked the question, why does God allow evil to prosper? And of course, my first answer is the one that usually stops people. And my answer is because if he was going to stop it, he'd have to kill you. Because we all think evil, say evil, and do evil. So what if one day God decided, I'm going to put an end to evil and I'm going to start with you? And then, of course, what would be the next thing? He'd have to go to the next person and the next person. He would have to stop all the people that do evil, which means the earth would be depopulated, right? God permits men to make choices. And the battle that has raged from the garden until we get to the new creation is the battle between good and evil. And every day we have options. <clears throat> every day we have choices. And every day there are people who are choosing the good over the evil. And of course, the good always refers to God's plan, God's will, and God's word. So every time you and I make a choice that honors the word of God, that's in line with his will, we are winning a victory in the battle. And that's very, very important because that will one day be honored and recognized in eternity. We also need to remember something else. You know, we look at Rahab as an example. And Rahab lived in an extremely corrupt, degenerate society. Most people cannot comprehend, and if I were to begin laying out for you what the culture of the Canaanites was, uh, you'd be leaving the room. Uh, it was degenerate beyond sometimes what words can even convey. And yet in the midst of that horrible and degenerate culture, lived a prostitute by the name of Rahab. And I find it very interesting that every time she's mentioned in Scripture, we're reminded that she was a prostitute. And why is that? Because she was living in a culture where that was not only an accepted activity, it was an honored position. And yet in the midst of that, and in the midst of the corruption and degeneracy, she heard what God was doing with the children of Israel. She heard about the Passover. She heard about the plagues. She heard about the crossing of the Red Sea. And it was enough to bring her to saving faith. And there are multitudes of people around the world today who will never come to a saving knowledge of Christ without the horrible things that are going on. And I don't need us to raise our hands but if I were to ask how many of you came to Christ when you were at the bottom or you were at a time of great stress and a great difficulty, I would imagine that probably most of us would find that that was what brought us.
to a saving faith in Christ. So whenever we hear about the horrible things going on in the world, I think it's very important for us to be praying that God will use these things to shock people, to open their eyes, and to cause them to turn in faith to Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, we go into Revelation chapter 12, one of the really foundational chapters of the entire book. Uh, and we start with the travail of Israel and the sign of the woman and the dragon. So a great sign appeared in heaven. Remember that John is fond of the word sign. You'll remember in the Gospel of John, he uses it eight times. There are eight signs beginning with the turning of water into wine and culminating with the eighth sign, most uh, commentaries only look at seven signs, which is amazing to me because they overlook the greatest, which is the resurrection. So from the turning of water into wine to the resurrection, we have eight signs. And the word sign is the word semion. I've mentioned before that there are three different words for miracle uh, in the scriptures. Uh, sometimes it's translated miracle, which means a supernatural event or activity something supernatural happened, and it places emphasis on the event itself. Another word that's often used is the word wonder. Sometimes signs and wonders go together, and wonder is a word that speaks of the reaction of the people. So they're shocked, they're stunned, they're amazed at what they've witnessed, and that's the word wonder. And then the third word, which is John's favorite, is the word samion, and the word samion, translated sign here, speaks of an event that has a deep spiritual significance. The turning of water into wine was much more than just turning water into wine. It was the beginning of Jesus revealing what he can do in the hearts and the souls of people. If he can take common water from a well and turn it not only into wine, but the finest wine, what can he do with the common life? It speaks of his work of regeneration. And so there's always that spiritual meaning behind it. And we're going to see the spiritual meaning behind the sign here of a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head, a garland of 12 stars. It says, then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. In verse three, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns and seven diadems on his head. Now, most people, when they get to this, just kind of roll their eyes and throw up their hands and say, how in the world can any of this have any meaning? But remember that the strange events and the uh, startling activities that we read about in the book of Revelation all have their roots back in the Old Testament. John is writing from a very Hebraistic, very Jewish perspective. And why is that? Because we know that the rapture of the church occurs before the tribulation, and when you get into the tribulation, what he's writing here is for people who are predominantly going to be Jewish believers. There are going to be multitudes and multitudes of Jewish people who come to a saving knowledge of Christ. So he's reaching back into the Old Testament, and he's drawing his pictures from there. You may remember in Genesis 37, between verses 9 through 11, Joseph had a dream. And in his dream, he saw the sun and the moon and the stars. Sound familiar? That's where the picture comes from. And the sun represented his father, the moon represented his mother, and the stars represented his brothers. The symbolism, of course, is of the nation of Israel. So here is a woman who represents the nation of Israel, with the sun, the moon, and the garland of stars. And then in verse 2, being with child, she cries out in labor and pain to give birth. So she is going through birth pangs. You'll remember Jesus often told his disciples of the time when there would be birth pangs. Go back to Matthew 24, and he introduces the idea of the tribulation with the word birth pangs or travail. So here we have the fulfillment going all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, you'll remember that God gave them the promise of redemption. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. 
And so what we have here is a pictorial display or demonstration of the fulfillment of that particular activity. Uh, the word that is translated pain here is basanizo. You have this in your notes. Uh, it actually means torment or torture. So it's not just the birth pangs that she's going through, but it's additional torment and torture. And this additional torment is coming, of course, from the dragon. And the dragon, of course, is the great fiery red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. We're going to see those exact same phrases used in chapter 13 and verse 1 when we come to Antichrist. And why is it? Because, once again, John is reaching back into Old Testament scripture and he is identifying where they've come from from that point. The seven heads represent seven kingdoms. Seven kingdoms. And I've got this uh, somewhere in your notes. Uh, I don't always follow them real close, so I'm not sure, but it's, uh, it's given. Let me just look here real quick. Seven empires are... Well, you'll find them there. As you read through, I, I know they're here, but I can't see them off the top of top of page forty-seven. There you go. Seven world empires: Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and the revived Roman Empire. That's basically what's in the mind of John. And why does he do that? Because every one of these empires has been hostile to the plan of God to bring a savior into the world. Every one of them has persecuted Israel. And so these are the seven heads, which are the seven kingdoms. 10 horns represent 10 nations that will join a confederacy in the end times. We don't know who they are at this point, uh, but they probably include portions of the old Roman empire. I have to explain something though that oftentimes people are confused about. When we talk about the Roman Empire, we remember that the Roman Empire split in two. You remember Daniel's vision? What was it in Daniel uh, 3 where he had the, the dream of the, the great statue and it was had a head of gold and arms of silver and a torso of brass and then legs of iron and then ten toes that were a mixture of iron and clay. It was the same thing that John's talking about here, except Daniel is looking forward in anticipating what's coming, and John is reaching back into the Old Testament to draw these figures. But those two legs made of iron represented the divided Roman Empire. And you'll remember that the Roman Empire divided between the Western Roman Empire, which was centered around Rome, and the Eastern Roman Empire, which was centered around Constantinople what was called the Byzantine Empire. Rome, people say Rome was destroyed in 476 AD. Well, that was the Western Roman Empire. The Eastern Roman Empire continued until 1453. So when we talk about a revived Roman Empire, if in your mind, I would encourage you not to think so much about Rome. I would encourage you to think more about Turkey, Syria, Iran, Iraq, all of these nations that were a part of the ancient Eastern Roman Empire. You'll remember that Daniel tells us in Daniel chapter 9 that the people of the prince who is coming will destroy the city. He was talking about 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem. The people of the prince to come, and everyone says, oh, they were Romans, Titus, the Roman, is the one who attacked the city. They were Romans, so it must mean Rome. But there's a little bit of information that we oftentimes have not been given. When Titus the Roman came down, he didn't bring Romans. When Titus came to attack Jerusalem, he gathered his legions from the surrounding nations. Guess where they were? Turkey, Syria, Egypt and uh, there's one other area that slips my mind at the moment. They were all Middle Eastern people. 
when Rome conquered a nation, they would press the men into military service. If you served 20, 25 years honorably, you gained your freedom. And so when the fifth, it was the fifth, the tenth, the fifteenth, and again one other, maybe the thirteenth legion, they were all Eastern Roman Empire forces. So the people of the prince to come, the prince to come being Antichrist, are those people uh, inhabiting what we refer to generally as the Middle East. So here we have the great dragon, which represents Satan. Uh, you can uh, find a lot of references to that if you go to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 2. Uh, and of course, in, just here in Revelation 12, 9, the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, that is the ancient serpent in the garden, called the de devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So we have no trouble identifying the serpent. Serpent, uh, the dragon here, and the serpent represents Satan. You'll notice in verse 4, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Now, in Old Testament analogy or symbolism, stars represent angels. You'll remember that the psalmist says that the morning star sang for joy when the creation was finished. Um, many, many times in the Old Testament, angels are referred to as stars. And so we take this to be that a third of the angels followed Lucifer in his revolt. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 14 or Ezekiel chapter 28, you have the record of the fall of Satan. And in his fall, he drew a number of angels with him. In Matthew 25, 41, you'll remember that the Lord Jesus talks about the fact that the lake of fire was created for the devil and his angels. It was never created for man. Man only goes there if man chooses to follow the plan of Satan and join his revolt against God. So these stars then, I take it to be a third of the angelic realm. The dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Uh, I would take this to represent the events immediately surrounding the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was born in fulfillment of all of the prophecies, where he would be born, when he would be born, how he would be born. All of those prophecies that were made in the Old Testament were fulfilled. But Satan knew he was coming. And Satan had been watching through the ages and waiting for that seed of the woman that was prophesied to crush him. And if he could kill the Savior at his birth, then of course he would win this great spiritual war that's going on. We know of course what happened with the birth of the Lord Jesus as the wise men went back to Herod uh, and reported to him that the Messiah had been, uh, or that it, as they were coming actually, that they were seeking for the child, and the child was to be born in Bethlehem. So the uh, sages of the uh, time declared. And so what did Herod do? Herod sent and slaughtered all the male children up to two years old. He wanted to make sure that he got him. Uh, we don't know how many that would have uh, included, but it would have been a huge number. So the dragon was waiting to devour the child of course, by the plan of God, Joseph was warned in a dream. And it's interesting that when he was warned in the dream, he didn't wait until the next morning. He left that night. He immediately gathered up his family and they fled into Egypt. So verse 5 says, She bore a male child who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And of course, this is a fulfillment of a number of prophecies. Not only Genesis 3.15, you'll remember in Genesis 49.10, it was prophesied that out of Judah would come the ruler and the savior. It also fulfills Isaiah 66, verse 7 and 8, and of course, Psalm chapter 2 and verse 9 and other passages that you've got there in your notes. 
Now, from verse 5 to verse 6, we have a gap of about 2,000 years. There's a gap here. Very important for us to notice these gaps. You know, when Jesus came into his hometown of Nazareth and he was handed the scroll of Isaiah, he began reading from Isaiah 61 and he talked about how he had come to heal the brokenhearted, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to show mercy to the people. And then he stopped in the middle of Isaiah 61 verse 2. And why did he do that? Because between the first half of Isaiah 61 2 and the second half is a gap of 2,000 years. Why is that? It's because when the prophets look forward, they look at the main focal points of the story. And the main focal points of the story are the first coming and the second. What happens in between? Well, this is why the Apostle Paul uses the word mystery. Why was the church age a mystery? Paul says that it was never revealed in the Old Testament. No prophet of the Old Testament saw the church age. None of them anticipated what was going to happen between the first and the second coming. And so the gap that we see is from the resurrection of Christ, the descent of the Holy Spirit, and we're now in what we refer to as the church age, which is an age of mystery. It's an age of phenomenal provision. No Old Testament believer could have even imagined having what you and I have. No Old Testament believer could have imagined having the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. No Old Testament believer could have imagined that every single child of God would have had a spiritual gift. They could not have imagined that they would have been raised up and seated positionally with Christ in the heavenly places. They couldn't have imagined that every single believer, I mean, when you read through the Old Testament, what do you see? Certain people stand out. People like David, people like Samson. There are certain people that the Holy Spirit anoints or empowers and works through, but it doesn't happen with everyone. And that's one of the things that's so unique about the time in which we live, because each and every one of us in the mind of God is already seated at his right hand with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what we refer to as positional truth. Positional truth refers to our position in Christ once we trust him as our Savior. And it's a result, of course, of the work of the Holy Spirit. And I've dealt before with the five things the Holy Spirit does at the moment of salvation, but we don't have time to go through that tonight. What it does do is unite us with Christ forever. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. So all of the provisions, everything that we have from the book of Romans through the book of Jude, people in the Old Testament could not even have anticipated that we would be so blessed. And the great tragedy is most believers are unaware of what we have, totally ignorant of the riches that are ours. When Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, that we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, what he's saying is that there is nothing more that God could possibly give to us. We look at people like the Apostle Paul and we think that they were somehow given greater ability or greater provisions or greater resources than what we have. But the reality is that the Apostle Paul did what he did because he exploited to the full the resources that each and every one of us have. Now, certainly his gift as an apostle was something far greater than any of us would have. But as far as his resources for the spiritual life, they were the same. So we make a big jump here in Revelation between verse 5 and verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness. Now the rapture of the church has taken place. We're moving into that seven-year period of time that we know as the tribulation period 
And this is the continued persecution of Israel by the devil. The question might be asked, why would the devil continue to persecute the nation of Israel since the Savior has already come? Well, the answer is pretty simple. God has made promises to the nation of Israel. If the nation of Israel can by any means be wiped out, then God's promises cannot be fulfilled. Therefore, God is not faithful. Therefore, guess who wins the conflict? Satan himself. So we are actually caught up and entangled in a far greater spiritual struggle than most of the time we ever realize. So the woman is going to flee into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Once again, this number keeps coming up over and over. It's either 1,260 days, 42 months, or a time, time, and half times. Look over to verse 14. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half time. Well, you say, what's time, times and a half time? What's well, 1,260 days or 42 months or the last half of the tribulation period? What happens in the middle of the tribulation period to set off all of these cataclysmic activities? It's what Jesus referred to in Matthew 24 as the abomination of desolation. Here's the rapture of the church. Here's the second coming of Jesus Christ. Seven years in between, divided in three and a half, three and a half. What happens right there? Matthew 24, verse 15, the abomination of desolation. What is the abomination of desolation? It's when Antichrist walks into the newly constructed temple, proclaims himself to the world to be God, and declares that anyone who does not worship him is going to die. Uh, it's going to be a world-shaking event. And of course, Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it's not going to be just like some guy walked off the street and walks in and says, hey, I'm God. He said that his appearance or his revelation would come with so many signs and mighty wonders that if possible, it would deceive even those who believe. So he is going to have a light show and a uh, miracle show like no one in history has ever had before. And as we'll learn in chapter 13, he's going to have a henchman that's going to back him up, which we refer to as the false prophet. Uh, we'll get there momentarily. Not as quick as I was hoping, but we'll get there. All right, so verse 7, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels, we know that Michael is the archangel. Uh, we know that Michael is the defender of the nation of Israel. Uh, Jude, chap, chap, actually Jude verse 9, there's only one chapter there. And Daniel 12, 1 illustrate these two truths for us. It says that there was a war and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and notice, and his angels with him. Going back to the third of the stars in verse four. Again, I think this lends credence to the fact that these are the angels who joined in his revolt. The dragon is cast out of heaven. Now this is not in your notes, so if you have a pen and you want to jot this in the margins, you might want to put this down. There are four falls of Satan. Four separate falls. Let's just go through them real quick. The first fall is when he fell from God's favor and his exalted position. You remember that he was called the anointed cherub that covereth. Uh, there are a number of things that could be included in that specific title. It could indicate that he was the defender of the throne room of God. That's one suggestion that's been made. The word covereth means to defend or protect. It could suggest that he was the high priest of the angelic realm that he led all the angels uh, in their worship. So it was a 
tremendously high exalted position, and from that position he fell. Isaiah 14, 12, Ezekiel 28, and verse 16. These two passages record the first fall from favor. It's very important for us to keep in mind that he did not fall from heaven. The book of Job shows us that he continued to come into the presence of God that he continued to accuse believers on the earth, even as he does right now. Paul tells us that in Romans 8. Now we have the second fall, and this is the one that we have here in Revelation 12, 7 to 9. It's the one Jesus spoke of in Luke 10 and verse 18, and here he falls from access to heaven. He fell from his exalted position, now he's thrown out of heaven. He no longer has access to any portion of the realm of heaven. Revelation 12, 7 and 9, and Luke 10, 18. The third fall is going to be his fall. He's cast from heaven to earth. Then he's going to be cast from earth into the bottomless pit. That's recorded for us in Revelation 20, verses 2 and 3. When the Lord Jesus comes back, there's a mighty angel that is going to take the devil and he is going to throw him into the abyss, and he is going to chain him there for a thousand years. So that is the third fall. You know, it's kind of like someone who decides the wrong course of action, and everything just keeps getting worse for him. That's exactly what's happening with Satan. Finally, he's going to be released for a little while out of the bottomless pit, but then he's going to be thrown from earth into the lake of fire. His final fall will be into the lake of fire, and that's recorded for us in Revelation 20.10, and of course fulfills what Jesus said in Matthew 25.41, that hell was created or the lake of fire was created for the devil and his angels. So the defeat of Satan is going to bring great rejoicing in heaven. Notice in verse 10, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Once again, he accuses them because he has access into heaven. That access is going to be denied and therefore his accusing is going to cease. Verse 11 is really a magnificent verse. It kind of stands alone for its uh, value and importance because it gives us the threefold victory of the saints. And I think this is true not only for those who are going to be living in the tribulation. Spiritual victory always comes the same way. And in fact, the victory is going to be seen in three stages. And I think these three stages really fulfill what Jesus said in Luke 9.23 when he said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, and let him follow after me. Well, this is what we have here. Notice what he says. And they, that is the saints, overcame him, that is Satan. By the way, this is how you and I are going to have victory if we're going to have it at all. By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives even unto the death. Three things. The blood of the Lamb, that's the saving work of Jesus Christ. They overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb. That is a once-for-all victory when a person trusts in Jesus Christ and His sacrificial death and is born again into the family of God, and that person is an overcomer by definition. Who is he that overcomes? But he that believes that Jesus is the Christ. That is John's statement in 1 John 5. So they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. But, you know, it's one thing to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but then we move on in life. And the question is, do we continue to overcome? We're an overcomer in the spiritual realm through faith in Christ. Are we an overcomer in practical daily life? Well, that requires something else. By the word of their testimony. The word of their testimony is not talking about them testifying how they came to Christ or what we usually call a testimony. It's talking about the word to which they testify, which is right here. This book, 
this revelation, these words are the word of our testimony. And if we have the hope of continuing to be in a practical sense, an overcomer on a moment by moment, day by day basis in life, how are we going to do it? It's only by the words that are written in this book. Those are the words to which we testify. The words that we declare to the world, these are the truth of God. So they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives even unto the death. God does not call every believer to be a martyr, but God clearly calls every believer to die. We are called to die. We are called to die to ourself. We are called to die to our own demands, our own wants, our own comforts, whatever those things may be, and again on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis. Jesus said, if you love your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life, that's called not loving your life. If you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. What does he mean? Well, as a believer, we can spend our life pursuing things that only benefit and bless us. We can live our life for ourselves. We can live for comfort. We can live for wealth. We can live for gain, whatever it may be. And we found life. We got a good job. We had a nice social status. We made lots of money. Uh, whatever else may have come along with it, that was our main concern, and we had a good life. But what happens when we stand before the Lord? We lose it all. Why do we lose it all? We lose it all because there was nothing in there of our willingness to submit and surrender to the plan of God for our life. Now, please don't get me wrong. Wealth, possessions, position, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. There's only something wrong with those things when they go contrary to God's will for us. We ought often to say to God, and this is a prayer that Nan and I often pray, whatever we have, whatever we possess that needs to be used in this way or needs to be taken from us, take it. In other words, live our lives with our hands open. Everything that we have is held before the Lord, and we say, everything I have is yours. You take it and you use it, and you give me the wisdom to use wisely the blessings that you've given us. So the idea here is they did not love their lives unto the death. They went to their death, however and whenever it came, laying their lives down for the Lord. It's a great and a spectacular thing when a believer is willing to die for Christ. We read about it, we hear about it, the martyrs in the scriptures, the martyrs in the early church, the martyrs around the world today, we hear about them all the time. People who lay their life down. And we give them honor and we should. But, there are those who are equally as honored who live their lives in a humble and surrendered fashion and, again, presenting everything to the Lord, living life with an open hand and simply saying, you do with me and all that I have. And that includes my wife, my husband, my children. You do with us as you will. We are at your disposal. And that is a life of surrender and that is not loving the life even to the death. So verse 12 says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. There's celebration in heaven, but there's woe on the earth. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows he has a short time. The Bible, or excuse me, the devil studies the Bible. And the devil knows that when this point comes, he has... 1260 days, 42 months, a time, time, and half time, and he knows if he can't pull a victory out in three and a half years, he knows his ultimate destination is the lake of fire, and there will be no escape from that. So he comes down with great wrath when he is cast out of heaven. 
When the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, in verse 13, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. He's been persecuting the woman all through her history. But now the persecution is really going to intensify. And so he, is, he uh, begins in a very intense persecution. This is the time again that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24. When you see the abomination of desolation, flee. Flee to the mountains. Don't turn back from your field. Don't come down from the rooftop into your house. You need every second, every moment to try to escape. Get away because the persecution is going to be intense. And so the dragon is persecuting the woman, but it says in verse 14, the woman was given two wings of a great eagle. That figure actually comes from Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus 19, when God spoke to the children of Israel, when they came to Mount Sinai, he said, you have seen how I have carried you on eagles' wings. And that's a figure that's used in Exodus 19.1, again in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 11, again in Isaiah 40 and verse 31. We all know that passage. They that wait on the Lord will do what? They mount up with the wings of eagles. That's a symbol or a picture of divine deliverance. So the woman is given the wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. God has a place prepared for her. Many believe that it's Petra uh, in the uh, canyons of Jordan. Uh, you probably have seen pictures of it. Some of you may have been there. Uh, amazing city carved out of stone. Uh, but whatever that place may be, God has people prepared there that are going to take care of the woman. So she is nourished for a time, times and a half time. In other words, the devil can't get to her from the presence of the serpent. Verse 15, so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood. Again, this is a picture of intense rushing persecution like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Again, what's his only hope in the last half of the tribulation? He only has one gamut left to win the spiritual war, and that is annihilate the children of Israel. It says in verse 16, the earth helped the woman and the earth opened his mouth and swallowed up the flood that the dragon spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And this is going to be, of course, Jews who have not fled into the wilderness, possibly scattered other places around the world. I believe it probably also includes Gentile believers. So there's going to be intense persecution during that last half of the tribulation period. And that brings us to the end of chapter 12, and I thought we might make it into chapter 13, but we're going to save the Antichrist and the false prophet for next week. Question? So this woman that comes up in 14 is Israel? Yes, Israel? same woman. Okay. Yeah. Uh, if you stop and think about it, the identities of the main players in chapter 12 are very important. The woman is Israel. The dragon's the devil. The son is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, of course, you have Michael and the angels and the saints. Those are the main players throughout the tribulation period. Does the vision of the woman in the basket in Zechariah have anything to do with this? Uh, no, that's actually a picture of uh, evil. Um, the, uh, the woman is a, a woman who is involved in great evil uh, that is carried off into the wilderness. Uh, it's it's not related to the tribulation. Now you had, it was very interesting. You were talking about Eastern and Western Rome or uh, Rome, Roman Italy, Empire, whatever. Shelley had mentioned all of the other previous kingdoms had been actually conquered. Rome is the only one that has not actually been conquered. It was just the, faded away. Is the, that a thing? Well, the Western part of the empire actually was what? the barbarians sacked Rome in 476 A.D. It's the eastern part that was never conquered. Okay. And again, that brings in Greece, Turkey, Syria, Jordan, 
the ancient kingdoms of Moab, Ammon, and Edom, which very interestingly have persecuted Israel all through her history, and yet the prophets tell us, and it actually may relate here where it says he has people prepared to nourish her, Moab, Edom, and Ammon are going to actually take Israel in and protect them, which is amazing because they've been their enemies all through history. Oh, gosh. An enemy is going to take them in. Sorry? Their enemy is going to take them in. Their, en their former enemies. Yeah. I, I forget. You know, I wish I had a brain like a concordance, but the prophets tell us that Moab, Edom, and Ammon, not only that, Egypt, uh, there's actually going to be a monument raised in Egypt to the Lord Jesus Christ uh, because of the fact that they're going to turn toward him. I think that comes out of Isaiah somewhere, but again, I don't have the, the brain of a concordance. You have a good brain. But. Jane, what's that part in Matthew where it talks about the, there was two grinding at the wheel? and? Okay, that's often mistakenly taken to refer to the rapture. Yeah. If you will just turn there, we've got a couple of minutes here. Uh, it's this is a much misunderstood passage. Matthew, what? Matthew 24, and it will be about verse 38, actually starting in verse 37. Uh, Matthew 24, 36 says, Of that day and hour no one knows. So we have to identify what day are we talking about. A lot of people take that day to be referring to the rapture. It's not. This whole section, Matthew 24 and 25, is all about tribulation's second advent. So we have, once we get ourselves into that mindset, it becomes easier. So as it was in the days of Noah, verse 37, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man, talking about second advent. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and eating in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Notice carefully verse 39. And they did not know until the flood came and did what? Took them away. Was that a good taking away or a bad taking away? Killed them all, right? The flood came and took them all away. So... The flood took them away, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. Then, verse 40, in that time, two men will be in the field. One will be Chicken. taken away. Is that good or bad? It's bad. He's taken away like the people in the flood were taken away. The other is going to be left. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, remember that all those who are saved are going to be left on the earth all unbelievers are going to be annihilated with the sword of his mouth. That's told to us in Revelation 19. They're the ones that are taken away. The ones that are left are the ones that are going to be alive to go into the kingdom. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken away. That's the unbeliever. The other is left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Again, the context is a second Advent context, not a rapture context. As a matter of fact, the rapture was unknown when Jesus spoke these words. Well, all this is not about our rapture? No. Oh. No, Matthew 24 and 25 is totally a tribulation second advent setting. So that's the last, the last three and a half years. Yes. Yep. And remember, Jesus gives us an outline Back up in chapter 24, he gives us an outline to follow. You'll notice in verse 9, the word tribulation. That's here. Mm -hmm. Then you notice in verse 15, abomination of desolation. That's here. Mm -hmm. Then after that, you'll notice that there is great tribulation. Verse 21, that's here. So the whole context of Matthew 24 and 25. Remember in Matthew 24 and 25, who is he talking to? He's not talking to the church. 
Jews. This is a mistake that we often make that we think everything in Scripture is directed to us. It's not. It's all for us. It's all beneficial to us. But it's not addressed to us. This is addressed to his disciples, Jewish believers. And when the church began, let's take, uh, we'll have the cross, the resurrection, the Holy Spirit comes down, church age begins. This is the mystery age. The only believers at that time that Jesus is speaking to were Jewish believers. The church didn't exist. The church was unknown. It had only been spoken of once and no one knew what he meant when he said it. On this rock, I'll build my church. And they're all going, what does that mean? Because church had never been explained or defined or spoken of until the Apostle Paul came on the scene and he revealed all of the things that relate to us in the church age. It's kind of hard to get your mind around this, I know, when you're used to seeing it another way. But, you know, as you go along, you continue on into um, be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You've all heard this. Jesus is coming like a thief in the night. Right? Mm -hmm. Did you know that that only applies to believers in the tribulation? Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 5. When people tell me, the Lord's coming as a thief in the night, I say, not for me, he's not. That's why you're to be ready. And the reason is because of what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5. You might remember... I. Not going to have you turn your Bibles back to Matthew 24, but in Matthew 24, <clears throat> the disciples are essentially asking the same question they ask in Acts 1. You remember what their question was in Acts 1? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Remember that? And what was Jesus' answer? It is not for you to know what? The times and the seasons. To the disciples at that point in Acts 1, he said, it is not for you to know. Now look at Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, and he says, you know the times and seasons full well. Why is that? Because he had revealed it. Paul is the one who had made it clear. So, 1 Thessalonians 5, concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you don't even need me to write to you, because you yourselves know perfectly well that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. All right, let's identify day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is not the rapture. The day of the Lord is the second coming. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes on them. Notice the shift from you to them. Them is referring to unbelievers. It comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you like a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep in the night. Those that get drunk are drunk at night. Let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For, verse 9, God did not appoint us to wrath. Wrath is a one-word summary of the tribulation period, but for salvation. And that salvation, of course, through the Lord Jesus Christ. So where does our salvation come? It's here. Is this making sense? If we understood it 25 years ago. Well, you know, we all, I mean, I'm, I'm constantly amazed. I've been studying this book for 50 years. And I am amazed at how little I understand. You know, you just... You can't stay in the Word and not constantly be seeing things and saying, why didn't I never see this before? 
And that's the thing that makes it wonderful because it's always new. Mm -hmm. It never gets old. There's no other book on the planet that you can read over and over and over and over and you'll always keep seeing something new. Because it's living. Because it is alive. Mm -hmm. It's alive and it's powerful. Everything you hear on the radio, every everybody that you hear is talking about the rapture and that. Like when we're, right. when we're swept away. Yeah. It's true that when the rapture happens, one's going to be taken in the rapture and one's going to be left. But that's not what that passage is talking about. Even to the movies that they make about the rapture. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. So crazy. Yeah. All right. Any other questions? Confusions? That was enough. That was enough for now? <laughs> well, let me, let me just close this by reminding us of something very important, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. But this may help you. <clears throat> Jesus gave three great sermons. We often refer to them as the three discourses. Number one was Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, on the Mount. What is the theme of the Sermon on the Mount? The kingdom. Sermon on the Mount is the laws of the kingdom. The Messiah came to bring a kingdom, right? All of the Jews were looking for the Messiah who would come and establish his kingdom, but they wanted an earthly kingdom, and he said, my kingdom is not of this world. They wanted it then and now. Exactly. And so what he said was, if you want to enter my kingdom, this is how you're going to do it. It's going to take regeneration and it's going to take obedience. Right? So he lays down the laws of the kingdom. His second message is... Olivet Discourse. Olivet Discourse. We call it Olivet from the Mount of Olives. And that's what we've been looking at. Matthew 24 and 25, also Luke 21, Mark 13. In the Olivet Discourse, what is he talking about? The whole focus is tribulation, second coming. That's the whole focus of the Olivet Discourse. The third is the one that relates to you and I, and that is... Can you get a different marker? Sorry. I don't care. I'll take a picture of this. The third one is... Upper room. Upper room, John 13 to 17, and the whole focus of the upper room is... The church age. This is the only one that is addressed directly to us. And when you say directly to us, it doesn't matter what we are. Like, it doesn't matter if we're Jewish or... Oh, no, no. Neither Jew nor Gentile, male or female, bond or free, all who are in Christ by faith, it's okay. to us. <clears throat> yeah. So once we understand that, <clears throat> it clears a lot of things up for us. John 3 or John 13? John 13. 13, thank you. John 13 through 17. Remember what was the first thing Jesus did? Wash their feet. It's the one thing that was missing in your book, how to be filled with the Spirit. Mm -hmm. You can't be filled with the Spirit until you're empty of yourself. That's the simplest way to explain the filling of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. So he started with the foot washing to show them the importance of cleansing. With Peter, he described the difference between taking a bath, which means salvation, and foot washing, which is restoration to fellowship. And then he goes into all of the other things leading up to, and how interesting is it, John is the only one who doesn't include the Lord's table. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. 
Why is that? Because John knew they had already written about it. He didn't have to write about it. What he wanted to do was explain everything that surrounded the Lord's table. So John 13 through 17 tells us about the coming of the Holy Spirit, his permanent indwelling. Uh, It talks about the fact that he is going to guide us into all truth. It teaches us how to abide in Christ and be obedient. Uh, Teaches us how we are to be witnesses for Christ. Beautiful, beautiful message in John 13 through 17. You said foot washing is regenerate, uh, restoration of what So you remember when Peter said, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about fellowship. Right. Okay. So then he went on to say, he who is bathed, that's salvation, only needs to wash his feet. That's confession. That's where John picks up. If we confess our sins on a day-by-day basis, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's how we're restored to fellowship. It's a form of humbling yourself. I'm sorry? Yeah. Yes, humbling Humbling yourself. yourself. Absolutely. What we're doing is letting him wash our feet. Just the same as he asked the disciples to do. All right. So we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. I'm going to turn off the recording here.